love dogs. I love dogs, too. Glad we're all on the same page. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Sarah Andreco Show. We're having a sunny day here, finally. It's been ice and snow, oddly, in North Carolina, so. <laughs> Which you're probably more no used to that kind of weather than I am. I am. I am. Get my station. I, I use a little, you know, ergo placemat, and I, uh, it's good for my feet, but it also keeps me stationed in camera. Yeah, so you don't <laughs> move around as much. Totally. I'm like, and then, and then like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's right. I've got to, I've got to focus here. I do the same thing. And, and anytime I'm giving like a, a presentation or a speech, one of the bigger complaints I get is like, you're all walking all over. I'm like, that's how my brain moves. It's very hard to stay stationary and continue my thought processes. <laughs> but... Exactly. I, I know when I'm doing these, these recordings uh, without video, for me, it's often a matter of, yeah, pu putting on the Bluetooth and then it's, it's pacing laps yes. throughout the office and just kind of, where, where are we at? What are we doing? How does this work? Exactly. Sure. I feel like it's so much easier. I, I don't know if it's like just sitting still, you get kind of, you know, it's like, okay, we got to We got to move the blood. We got to get things circulating, but I'm getting used to it. It's getting better because you can't pace when you're doing podcasts. It just doesn't work if it's video anyway. Mm, no, for, for me, the difference is uh, still being able to do them standing. Yeah. Makes a big difference. So I, I, I'm in the process of reconfiguring the office or right now I literally only have a standing desk. Uh, I, I don't actually have anywhere to sit in my office, which is helpful and problematic depending on what I'm working on. So I've got, I've got some new equipment on the way and once that all arrives and anyways. Yeah. And what's under your good. feet, making sure you're taking care of that back and everything with standing. Yeah. So I, yeah, by the way, I love the... that photo in the back of your, in your room there. I have that picture as well. It, that one? Mm-hmm. It is like yeah. uh, my constant reminder of my first like dog that I fell in love with as a child growing up. She was a Chesapeake Bay Retriever. And so that, that always reminded me of her. I love that one. It's, it always cracks me up too, because that, uh, although the dog looks very different, that was very much uh, sort of the image um, as you came into our master bedroom in the house we lived in White Bear Lake when we were in Minnesota. And our great Dane would always curl up and you, you know, you would never know that she was 130 pounds because she was this tight little ball. And then she would stand up into this ginormous leggy beast. And you're like, holy, holy crap, where'd that come from? So it's, it's a good reminder of, of her as well. Oh, yeah. The yeah. bittersweet, bittersweetness to it. Right, right. You know, there's something to be said for, for the giant breeds. Although, I mean, she, yeah. she lived to be almost 12. She was about wow. uh, 11 years, eight, nine months. Yeah, exactly. I, so, you know, I, people talk about, you know, losing, you know, the Danes and the Mastiffs at like seven, six. Seven, eight, nine. Yeah. Easy. Seven. Yeah. My double digits unheard of. And yeah, she was, she was just, just about to hit 12. We lost her to uh to a bone cancer. Oh my but, gosh. Um, Again, at age 12, it's like, you you know, it's going to be something. And the hope yep. was really, we'd be able to, to identify what it was far enough in advance that she wouldn't experience significant pain or discomfort as a result of it. Excellent. And that was, it was something that, uh, uh, our, the massage therapist we were using at the time actually identified the lesion first. She was like, Hey, she's got a little bump on her leg. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's always been there. She's like, yeah, no. <laughs> There's something different, and, and we, you know, literally just like put a hand on and went, ah. Oh, yeah. So, but you know, having a great team around was what allowed us to catch it, and then have that time to create an action plan yeah. to say, hey, if this, then this. As long as this, then this. 
and to be able to do that. So it was it was an important part of her her process as well. That plan is, ahead of time is so important because when you're you know lost in that emotional state and you're farther in the process and you don't have yes. that plan to stick to, it's so easy to you know, make decisions that might not necessarily be what you would have in a clear headed state. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. For her that it was the difference of knowing that it was a front leg and she, she actually was pretty sound orthopedically, but was old enough and, you know, big enough and just ataxic enough in the hind end that we knew if she started having to weight shift back or started to show any sort of right, left favoritism, that was going to be a very steep, slippery slope that was going to kick very, very quickly. Yeah. So yeah. establish that criteria. And the first time she went out, I was I'm, actually Robert and I were both there at the time and she had gone out to, to, to use the backyard to potty and she went to squat to pee and raise that front right just a little bit. Oh. And both of us just looked at each other and went, ah, oh, shit. Yep. Okay, let's watch her. Let's give her a day or two. Make sure, you know, we're, yeah. we're not going to rush the process, but also we're not going to prolong it either. And, and, and just a little bit more pronounced. And we were like, okay. Yep. You know, so anyway, anyways, I could go down that rabbit hole, but. Oh my no. gosh, I know. Me too. Well, and I, I got so excited. There's a, um, I didn't know she was here. She didn't know I was here. It's like one of those people that you've been around for 20 years, but you have no idea that either of you exist in the same city. There's a senior dog doctor here in Charlotte. And I feel like that's such a niche that needs more filling, you know, because primary care vets, it's kind of like the same old thing when it comes to managing senior inflammation and pain and joints and everything else. And I was so excited to find that she was in this area and um, connected with her recently. But her whole, her, her dedicated path is all to senior dogs and comfort and helping people through all of the crazy stuff that comes with having a senior dog and knowing what to do Amazing. about those things. And yeah, so super excited oh, to find her here, but yeah. Kind that of is amazing. Well, and it reminds me, as you say that too, um, I, I in my head as I was logging in this morning, I was like, wait a minute, wh where is where is Sarah? Like, where, where in the U.S.? <laughs> I lose all context when we meet everybody through Zoom, and so I'm glad you mentioned Charlotte. I don't know if I'll be able to make it this year, but the Fetch DVM 360 conference in April, I believe, is live in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Fetch DVM 360? Uh, yeah, yeah, and it's it's fetch fetch is kind of the the branded uh, conference name, but uh, but yeah, there's a possibility. Ah. I, I I think I'm listed as a speaker on the on the docket right now, with the caveat that I'm actually supposed to be testifying in front of a jury in Hawaii on a feline legal case that I'm an expert witness oh on, and so. Legal cases, like nine times out of 10, they end up rescheduling, postponing, yep. settling two weeks prior. So they're like, we're going to throw you on the docket as an option. Here are the lectures you will be giving if you can make it. So it's going to be a last minute. Either I'll be in Hawaii testifying legally or I'll be in Charlotte. So if if we're there, uh, if I'm there, then it would be fun to yeah, I'd love to connect. If it worked out. Absolutely, yeah. and grab some dinner and have some awesome conversation. But hey, if you end up in Hawaii, I mean, that's not a bad place to testify. Just saying. <laughs> I, I know. I was like, oh, Oahu. Okay. Oh, I mean, gee, it's really going to put me out, but you know. <laughs> right, right. Like, yeah, and it's it's for uh, yeah. I don't know exactly where it is, but we, we'd be in we'd be in Oahu. Uh, yeah, there's a court case involving one of the. Uh, one of the beachfront resorts and a cat and a patron who was bitten and oh, geez. anyways, but, but yes, uh, and all of the, almost all of the legal cases that I get involved with are, they're a bite case typically relative to insurance coverage. Mm. 
you know, kind of who should have known who who was responsible. Is it well, you know, was it Who's the owner, meaning homeowners? It. Was it the business owner? Was it the individual? So they're 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 usually, I mean, they're they're cases that range anywhere from like four hundred, five hundred thousand dollar settlements to multi million dollar settlements in cases of uh, disfiguring injuries relative oh, wow. to bites. And so so it, it's a lot. Um, I'm grateful to have the experience under my belt to be able to stand up under pressure in front of juries. It's not, it's not for the faint of heart. No, that's really cool. I actually had, I did my first court appearance as an expert witness um, a few weeks ago, I want to say. But anything mm. I've ever done has always been kind of, oh, we'd like your opinion. Oh, can you come assess this dog? But not, oh, we need a full legal write-up and we need you to testify. And I was like, oh, okay, all right. <laughs> so I actually called Jim Crosby down in Florida and I was like, can you review all my notes and make sure I don't do anything stupid? <laughs> He's like, yeah, sure, right. no problem. So he gave me a little coaching session and I've been you know, with other things, non-animal um, related in and out of the court systems just for various different things. So I had a little bit of experience at least as to what it was gonna be like, you know, the whole yes. um, attorney, even though there are no sides, as, as a witness, you're not on a side, but there's, there's always that chance that some attorney is gonna try to rip you apart. And um, I know I shouldn't say this, but I actually had a lot of fun schooling the attorney in this last case because he had no idea what he was talking about. And I was like, well, actually, yeah. but um, yeah, it was- That's usually the case. Um, it and, is. You know, it's one no of the idea. things that we kind of use as the secret weapon to be able to talk whoever has hired me. Again, I agree. Yeah. It's not about size. No. It's not about plaintiff defendant. It's about sort of what does science represent for for this? You know, what can we say definitively? And yeah, I remember those one of the cases where uh, I mean, uh, this this the, the litigator, the prosecutor was f fuming. I mean color change oh. there was spittle flying oh this is pre-masks <laughs> like so he was dramatic livid. oh it was i mean and it was the dog has been labeled by its veterinarian as aggressive and like with these dramatic pauses and every time aggressive came out, i was like okay well let's define that yeah i love that you know, yeah exactly what we're, does that we're gonna mean? need to act so, right so we'll, under which context and this and that and he's like yeah but the veterinarian said i'm like yes you know, so again, it was that whole process and like this entire huge, huge, it was a disfiguring facial bite that was, that was involved. And because the dog had shown sort of mild defensiveness in the veterinary clinic, it was sort of like, that's our slam dunk. Yeah. That's going to win us the case. And I was like, actually, <laughs> that's not nearly as powerful as someone might have led you to think. So let's dissect this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you could just see the whole like yeah, the I know. whole case kind of unraveled around him at that point. So it was it was good times. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, that'd be interesting. How how long have you been doing um, cases? You know, I think the first one was probably back in. I think that case was my first one. Actually, ah. that was it was trial literally trial by fire, um, and that one I think was probably 2014, 2015. Yeah, yes, you got there, some under so your belt then. Yeah, you got some good experience. Yeah, no, I've been retained, I think, 30, 30 or 40 times at this point nice. and have done probably a dozen or so depositions, you know, in a recording context or in person uh, back when back when we did that routinely. And then, yeah, about, about a half dozen, maybe six, seven, eight uh, in front of jury cases. And, you know, enough enough to know what they typically go like, but also enough to know that there are so many ins and outs of the legal system 
that I've, I've, I've actually been burned a couple of times, even with a fair amount of experience where I've come in expecting it to be one thing and not knowing exactly what question to ask. Mm -hmm. And then finding out we're halfway through a deposition and we're like, oh, this is not, you know, this is not sort of the, uh, like the deposition I just did, I had already written an expert witness statement. So they were basically trying to poke holes in the opinions I had already created. Right. Versus, I think it's called the discovery deposition. If you haven't prepared a formal statement, but they are expecting you to go line by line with the individual opinions that you have. And all of the ones that I had done in the past were always more sort of Q&A based. Mm -hmm. What do you think about this? What's your opinion on this? So I, I've learned sort of kind of you, you're, you're kind of a bit coy with your answers. Yeah. You know, answer only the question yes. that was asked, allow them to tease it out. So I came in and that is coming so at that hard. angle. That is so hard to and do. And that guy was so pissed. He was like waiting for me to give my opinions. And he's like, do you have opinions? I'm like, yes. <laughs> of course and I And he's like, what are they? <laughs> like, well, I'm prepared. He's like, and, and at some point I was like, oh, shit. This is not that. This is this deposition, not that one. Right. And then I was able to switch gears thank God, quickly enough to make a difference. But I was, I was like, when I told my, my the, the legal counsel later, I was like, hey, FYI, that was not the deposition description that you gave me. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, yeah, and it was like a multi-pit bull disfiguring, oh, guy geez. almost died, sort of. A, like, it was a big deal. I was like, ooh, I was, I mean, I was grateful I was wearing a shirt that didn't show sweat through because I was drenched oh by the time gosh. I came out of that. And it was a video deposition, too. So it was like all of the awkwardness of trying to. <laughs> you learn oh, from every so... experience. You grow from every experience, it's... pleasant or not. Right. right. Kudos for joining the world of, of expert witness stuff. It's, I, I often people, when people are like, how does that go? I was like, well, it pays well and it's an effing pain in my ass. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I found it interesting. Like I said, I've only ever been on like the backside, not like frontal. Like, hey, Sarah, what do you think about this? Or have you met this dog? Or can you, you know, what do you think a potential outcome could be? Right, exactly. Not, oh, we need very specific objective information and you're going to testify. Oh, and by the yeah. way, you need to be available on call. And <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Right? Yeah, great. Right? Mm -hmm. That's the thing like with this Hawaii case, I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll clear my schedule. So I actually, and, and you may have this already, but one of the things that I ended up building in after the first couple of cases is that my, my retainer document now has a clause that if you've asked me to hold specific days, weeks, or hours, and if you give me insufficient ability to rebook those with other events, mm -hmm. if those timelines end up being vacant, I will bill you at my normal rates for having reserved those times. Good, yeah. So it, it, you know, again, I had a couple of times where like, oh, actually, no, that all got rescheduled and <laughs> we're going to need you to juggle. I was like, you know what? No, I'm, I'm, I'm going to need you that. to pay the bill and then we can discuss <laughs> where we're going after that. Yeah. Completely. Exactly. Oh, and some of them drag on like one that just settled like this legal case, this Hawaii one. I think the incident was in 2016, maybe, you know, they drag on forever yeah. and then with COVID you know, postponements and this and that. So, well, and this is just a side topic and we don't have to get on a tangent, but, but something that like, like bothers, bothers me rather considerably is that the way that the laws are set up here, at least in the Southeast, these court case dogs are here for two, three, four years and they are going yeah. nuts. Like, it's so interesting that we have these animal welfare laws that we implement on the public, but then you have shelters that are trying to do the right thing that are basically, you know, um, 
committing animal cruelty themselves because they have no other choice because the law says you have to hold them. You can't release them to foster. You can't release them wherever. I mean, only the national companies I've found, um, like when I've worked with ASBCA or HSUS, they will very quietly, legally transfer them into foster at least, but the shelters can't. And I'm like, I, I got to get involved from a legislative perspective at some point on this. Like I need to add something else to the plate. But I mean, one of the shelters I'm working with down here in South Carolina in particular, it's horrible. Every time I go visit this one dog, he's just spinning. He's been there for four years. He's just spinning in his kennel the whole entire time. And even the little amount of enrichment, the little amount of interruption that you can do for him really doesn't in the long run do anything. It's just, it's horrible. No. Anyway. Yeah. No, it's a, yeah, it's a drop in the bucket and almost in, in some ways I... Well, yeah, this this truly is a, a rabbit hole we can go down. But I've, yeah, I've worked with, in shelters with very similar experiences there too. And it's, whew, you it's know, so and, and yeah, the inability, whether it's because of a safety issue or whether it's because of ownership, you know, the inability to prescribe meds, the compromise that often happens in terms of medical care and just so many layers that I agree. There's, there's often, there's a reason why the animal may be there in the first place, but are we doing the best by them by handling it in that particular way? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, and I think part of it is just how long these court cases take too, how many appeals there are and everything else. But um, yeah, exactly. So yeah. onto our topic for the day. <laughs> I feel like I could talk to you all day long about all these topics, which is so much fun. Um, thanks a lot for agreeing to come in and talk about supplements. I'm really, really excited about tackling supplements because this is like, one of those huge booming markets out there for consumers, pet parents as consumers, um, that don't know about behavior modification, that don't know that they have access to board certified veterinary behaviorists, or maybe are yes. nervous about putting their animals on medication, even if it is suggested. So, yes. you know, companies have found this um, niche and filled it. And now there's these, all of these supplements out there that are unregulated. And, you know, sometimes they can be really helpful and sometimes they can be harmful. And so I really wanted to bring you on here, get your opinion about some of this stuff, see what you use, see what you don't, and maybe also just provide some guidance in particular to veterinarians out there and veterinary staff, because they're going to have to know some of this stuff. Their clients are going to come in and say, my dog has separation anxiety. So I started giving it melatonin, you know, or these calming shoes that have melatonin and CBD and lavender and, you know, valerian root and all these other different things. And the vet's going to be like, uh, okay, where do I even start? So I'm hoping we can dissect some stuff here, pull some pieces out, yes. maybe talk about, um, some things that people can look for or just some guidance in... I was just jotting down a couple of thoughts as you were sort of, I was, I was like, okay, we, you know, I, I've, I, I answered in, in my head, at least sort of answered the, the, the questions and the product related things, but then, you know, sort of the indications and when and how and why. And, and then on the, 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 the owner side, what I hadn't jotted a note down was, you know, do you have a timeline of efficacy, you know, or even a suspicion of when it might make a difference if it will versus, you know, the clients who come in like, I've been giving it for four months, still waiting to see if it's going to work. I'm like, oh my God, you've spent like $700 <laughs> on stuff that, no, if it didn't work in four days, it wasn't gonna, mm -hmm. you know, or, or whatever the case may be, or, or, you know, whether it's within medications or supplements where clients have, you know, basically were asking them, did it work? And they're like, I don't know, what should I have looked for? And you're like, oh no, like nobody gave you, nobody gave you, or you didn't look for the opportunity to even understand what you're monitoring to evaluate efficacy. So now we've, maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. We've lost all of that 
possibility of data. So we can dive into all of those things too in terms of how we guide or how, how owners and, and caregivers and pet parents really sort of make those decision pieces. So happy to do it. I think I'd like to start from the the regulation perspective, right? So if we're looking at foods, you know, you're, if we're, we're regulating nutrition based on FDA standards and whereas supplementation, medication also has much more stringent of regulations, whereas supplements are not regulated, regulated by the FDA. In fact, there are several products that are out there that don't even list all of the ingredients on the packaging because it's not regulated. Um, and we have these independent, and I wish there were more of them, frankly, but these independent companies that will test these products and actually go through them. And this is this is bigger in human supplementation than it is in animal, but they'll say, oh, this has you know so many milligrams of X, Y, or Z. When we extract it and we look at it, there's hardly a trace of it in there. So I, I, I think we could start with kind of the, the regulation concern to begin with, with some of these products. And how do veterinarians know what to trust and what not to, or what's even worth the time versus what's not, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, I, I think that the biggest question that I have as a prescriber or someone who's answering those questions for, for, for my client who comes in and says, hey doc, what do you think? I, I look at it from the standpoint of saying, you know, what, what's in it? You know, even just looking at the label. So is it something that I can get uh, an inkling of whether this may or may not be effective for that. But then we've really got to have that sort of curiosity and maybe even maybe a little nod of skepticism to say, are we confident that what is on the label is in there? And that's only what's in there and that we're not getting other trace elements or other things that could actually be problematic, you know, or do we have confidence that this is a company that is you know, actually putting the animal's needs and overall health status at the front of their formulations? Or are they trying to make something that's more palatable? And so the owner sees that the animal really, quote unquote, loves their supplement, but we're not actually getting the efficacy that we're looking for. So all of those considerations come to mind for me, you know, and trying to get a sense of what's going on within those products. And, you know, I remember having a conversation with a client one time. They said, well, but wait a minute it's available on the market. So doesn't that mean automatically that there's been a certain amount of testing and a certain yeah. amount of awareness from the medical side? And I was like, well, I mean, I love your optimism. I love your your enthusiasm for that piece. And the honest answer when it comes to supplements is no. In fact, even when we look at other industries as well, I, conversation had come up not to get off topic, but a client was saying, well, but wait a minute, I've got this litter box for the cat and wouldn't this be perfect? It was like, yeah, that is a perfectly designed litter box for a human caregiver. That is a terrible, <laughs> terrible idea if someone were to actually ask the cat. And so I think about our supplement conversation in kind of the same way that if we're looking at purchasing decisions and buying decisions and what gets regulated and what doesn't and what do you put on the label and what do you leave off, that is arguably mostly for the human consumer and is in many cases really not tailored to the individual needs or the actual health status of the animal itself. Right. Yeah, and I think that's a, a big problem because we are we are very much 
us forward, us focused. So everything from the packaging to the way it smells when you open it up. Like I even think about things like your fragranced, your, your heavily fragranced dog shampoos that, you know, completely throw the pH off and now you end up with all sorts of skin issues because you just use something that smelled really lovely, right? Yes. So yeah, to your point, you know, are we looking at this from the perspective of the animal that has a particular need and are we actually doing good by trying to fill that need from the perspective of someone that doesn't have that education behind them and so yeah I, I think it's highly important just given how nuts this industry is all of a sudden for vets to be able to say okay let's look at what you've done let's look at what you've researched yourself because I think ownership with with pet parents is so important they want to feel a part of that process and feel like they've had some um, contribution to the solution for their own pet that they should know better than anybody else. So, you know, okay, thank you for finding this and doing some research on this. Now let's take a look at some of these ingredients. Let's take a look at the problems that your pet is facing and decide if something might be advantageous or if it might do absolutely nothing or, you know, and some of that might be gauging how the owner feels about it. I really want to try this. I really want to do this. Or I don't know what else to do. So I just pick this, you know, where, how are we looking at it in terms of how the owner is feeling from an emotional state about what they're trying to do for their own animal. Yeah, for sure. You know, and I think, you know, when you talk about sort of the ownership of kind of the role within decisions, it, it also reminds me that especially over the last, gosh, uh, six years or so, uh, thinking about all of the education that the fear-free movement has put out for pet parents, for the veterinary communities, there's such a visibility right now of fear and anxiety issues, which is amazing. And it gives us an yeah. incredible opportunity now to advocate for these, these patterns, for these problems that owners and pet parents are now seeing, recognizing, and wanting to address. So amazing. And what are mm -hmm. we reaching for, right? Is it, you know, did we pick something because it was available through Amazon Prime and I could have it tomorrow? Was it something that, you know, I would ask my vet, but dang, they're booked out months at a time. I could never get their opinion, so I'm not even going to bother, you know, and, and then the, the veterinarian is, is even sort of oblivious that this decision making process is even happening, right? There's so many different ways that, that consumers make their decisions and even the value of the feedback that they get, whether it's coming from the veterinarian, from the, the client care representative, sort of as a side comment, whether it's a, a Google review, whether it's, you know, Susie in the grocery store who happened you bumped into in the, in the pet aisle, like who is it coming from and what is the actual value and uh, I'd argue almost scientific validity of their opinion, you know, opinions are all valid and they don't all carry the same weight or strength based on the knowledge or the education that, that may come behind them. Again, not saying any opinions are invalid, but there is a stratification here based on the, the, the knowledge on which those opinions are founded. Right, right. So um, in talking about ownership, say, say um, you know, in your practice, you have an owner come in that wants to be a part of that, that wants to help and is very... Um, proactive in looking through some of these things and and they feel the need to, to be a part of that process. What are some things that you would suggest for pet parents or vets that are in the same position where they want to be a part of that process to look for or to potentially filter out as they're doing their own research to be a part of that process to bring back to their vet to say, hey, here's what I found. What do you think? Yeah, I think the first point for me is, is to try to move just to even a little bit beyond the label. Like, great, you're looking at the label and it's saying, this is amazing for fear and anxiety. 
go that little bit farther to say, number one, what's in it? You know, are we talking about a product that is, yeah, yeah, I remember looking at a label, this was a while back, and it's something that was like, may contain, da da da, da. I was like, what do, you, yeah. what do you mean? What do you mean it may contain this? No, I want to know exactly what's in this. So are we talking about L-theanine? Are we talking about tryptophan? Are we talking about thiamine? Are we talking about, you know, a colostrum calming complex? Are we, what is it that's within that? And either for that particular product or for that active ingredient, again, assuming that we can say with confidence that that is in fact in there, what sort of uh, what sort of research do we have to document? Does that work? And if so, for what? And at what doses? And this is something yes. that I've really been you know, paying attention to. I was having a conversation with a practitioner just this last week, and he was like, hey, I was looking at these two products. How would you compare them? They look the same to me. Uh, and this particular practitioner had run down the list, and they both contained very similar ingredients, and yet we went one step farther and the concentrations of those individual ingredients were dramatically different. And it doesn't mean that, that one of those products is inherently better or worse. But again, if we're looking at something that, let's say, has a combination of magnolia and philodendron, oh gosh, I know that there was a project that was done about eight, nine years ago that looked at that particular combination for noise sensitivity. Cool. If that's the patient that I have in front of me and that's our primary concern, awesome, then I'm probably going to skew in the direction of a product that has more of that particular ingredient and perhaps less than others versus if I'm looking for perhaps an indirect way to really target the serotonin system, then I might be skewing more in a tryptophan direction and I might leverage my, my recommendation there. So the, the first point here is sort of moving just a little bit beyond the label claim and saying, yes, it's labeled for fear and anxiety. What is in it? And is there any validity to the science that has really supported that particular product or those active ingredients? Right. And, and I think um, you bring up a good point, too, about knowing what is science and what is not. So have clinical studies been done, not just those Amazon reviews of, yes, this is great or no, it's not, um, but hel helping people understand what is evidence to whether this is something that could be a, a good idea to try with your, your dog or cat or not based on where you're finding that information? And with dosages, it's so interesting. I find that to be a huge problem with CBD supplements. Yes. You know, you'll notice there's this wide range of these recommended dosages and concentrations of CBD for various ailments. But even if you look at two different products that are addressing the same issue essentially say you take two that are meant for you know fear related aggression or anxiety whichever and they will have completely different concentrations and you have no idea what strain it is necessarily if it's if the terpenes in it are even you know specifically for that purpose as well or if it's just for flavoring or scent or anything else so yeah i find that that's one of those industries with the one of those supplements that is really difficult to navigate for just about anyone. And I've spoken with a lot of veterinarians that feel the same way. They're like, I don't even touch CBD because I have no idea. The recommendations are all over the place. It is the wild west as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's, it's you know, every man or woman for themselves, right? In terms of, <laughs> you know, what product are you pushing? What are you trying? And, and yeah, and, and the frustrating part for me, you know, when we look at sort of the, the expert opinion here, let's say of the veterinarian or the veterinary behaviorist. And when a client asks me, you know, does CBD work? 
I, I kind of sort of pause and I may even sound a little hesitant to answer because I'm like, I honestly, I don't have a clue because, you know, we put all of this into, let's say, let's call it the CBD bucket, right? And as you said, based on formulation, based on strength, based on purity, based on consistency, you know, based on the even consistency of dosing of the owner, did they know what to look for? I get this scatter plot of data and I would like to say that it works and that I know what dose, which particular formulation and what, you know, what dosing frequency and all of that, but I don't have that yet. I know that there are some ongoing research projects, true placebo controlled blinded projects looking both at pain uh, as well as neurologic function, as well as fear, fear and anxiety. Uh, and, and so I, I'm hopeful that we're going to have more information uh, but I, I really struggle sometimes and this, you know, with, at risk of sort of skewing the conversation in a different direction prematurely, you know, I want to really call out that idea that, you know, gosh, if we're not sure that it's going to work, I'm not saying to go in completely skeptical and saying, I'm not going to try anything because I'm not confident. But it also frustrates me when I do work with a client who has, in some cases, spent thousands of dollars trying product after product after product after product without knowing what they're looking for and just hoping. And then by the time we get to, whether it's someone like myself or one of my colleagues or a, you know, a credentialed trainer or behavior consultant, and they're saying, gosh, I'm out of money, I'm out of resources, and I'm, honestly, I'm out of hope. And I'm like, oh my God, like 18 months ago, we had such a full arsenal of tools at our, at our disposal and we don't have them anymore. So, so there is sort of this, this sort of double-edged, you know, sort of situation here where, you know, yes, I want people to try. I want them to see if it's working and, oh gosh, work with someone who can really help guide that process and help you to decide whether or not what you're doing is in fact making a measurable difference. Because if it's not, we need to move on. Let's try something different. Uh, whether that's a different supplement, whether it's a different training approach, whether it's a medication, or maybe there's an underlying medical issue that's impacting the way in which that supplement is or is not affecting the behavioral profile of your animal. So many, so many details are so important here. Yeah. And especially, um, I think too, expressing the expectations. So I find, um, just in some of the, the clients that I work with that are trying different medications or different supplements, whether it's, you know, backed by a veterinarian or not, you know, they're, they're, they're doing these things and they're going through these experimentations, but understanding what the actual expectations are. I always tell people journal day to day. I was like, some of these differences are going to be really, really subtle and you want to be able to pull them out over a timeline to determine whether it's something that's accurately working or, um, is, is helping the problem versus hurting the problem or just a plateau basically. Um, but I think too, it's, I think people still expect supplementation to have the same effect as like behavior medication would or a, psych a psychopharmaceutical to where these medications are really strong typically, right? And they are going to produce a, a different outcome versus supplements tend to be, which I th think is why people find them, you know, safer or they're more likely to use them. They're not as dramatic with their effects. And is, and do you find that that's because they're meant to be in addition to I'm not just behavior modification, that's obvious, but in addition to using a psychopharmaceutical, is it something that's meant to kind of pair or do you feel that some of these supplements might actually be enough to help them with behavior modification and get them where they need to be in that process? That's a great question, Sarah. And, you know, and I will say that it's, 
it's sort of all over the map, um, you know, as we might expect, right? Like every animal is their own sort of behavioral study of one, right? Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, it's difficult to make sweeping claims in either direction. With that being said, you know, where, where I often start this conversation with my clients or the veterinarians that I'm working with is, you know, on one hand to say any of these supplements or psychopharmaceuticals can can make a difference. So all of them work some of the time, some of them work all of the time. No, not really. Right. Like nothing is ever going to be the, the panacea that we want it to be. Uh, and so having a mindset of going, well, we can try certain things. I'm going to make my recommendations about sort of where we go based on a couple of factors with the first caveat that um, I'm going to call everything here for just a second medication, whether it's a supplement, whether it's a pheromone, whether it's a truly phar a pharmaceutical, something that we're giving the animal in hopes that it has an impact for our purposes here, typically on fear, anxiety, stress, arousal, something along those lines. And when I look at all of the available options here under this medication or supplement category, what I have to remind myself and my clients is that none of those things that we're doing directly target learning, meaning they don't teach yes. the animal anything, right? We may, we may be able to sort of mitigate the impact of fear and anxiety. We may be able to reduce arousal and create a greater sense of well-being and calm and using some of the buzzwords that are out there in the industry, right? We can do all of that. And much of what the animal is doing currently here right now is based on prior learning and understanding the relationship between antecedents, behaviors, and consequences based on the outcomes that that animal has perceived. And so, you know, back to your point about needing to, to combine whatever it is that we're using with some form of management and behavior modification, that's why. It's not like we're saying, oh, you'll get better results. It's like, no, no, no you may not get any results that with these supplements versus medication, and I'll come back to the stratification of strength here in just a second, that if the goal here is to reduce the impact of fear, anxiety, stress, emotional arousal on the, the animal's ability to learn, to, to be behaviorally flexible and adapt to new changing conditions, we might create that flexibility with a medication or a supplement but unless we're also educating that animal, we're not going to see it, right? It's such an important thing to remember. Uh, and so, so yes, and then the magnitude of the effect, we might be able to stratify between supplements and medications, knowing that I've had patients in my practice where we've trialed multiple medications because we felt that was the way to go. And when we didn't get the results that we were looking for, we said, well, you know, we have, we kind of skipped over supplements. Why don't we try, you know, a combination there to see what works? And lo and behold, we find something that does. And of course, vice versa, where we've got a, maybe perhaps have a client and an animal where multiple supplements have been trialed without success and, you know, straight out the gate, we had, you know, a home run with the first pharmaceutical that we reach for <laughs> because the magnitude of the effect is so much more profound. We can see it, we can work with it, we can modify it and so on. So it, it, it's difficult to, to really say across the board where I would start, but I think it's important to recognize that continuum in each of those areas. 
Yeah, that's completely understandable. I, I, I definitely can get where you're coming from from there. Um, but in regard to ingredients as well, in, in regard to specific supplementation, you know, there's, there, there's ongoing research that are trying all of these different factors. You mentioned like valerian and tryptophan and L-theanine and magnesium. And even the, in the mushroom spectrum, like ashwagandha and lion's mane, as far as you know so far, are there any of these things that you've looked into to, um, as of now that you would say, mm, I've seen absolutely nothing with this. I think this is just, I think this is just kind of crap. Or yeah, I have seen some success with this in particular. I've seen it multiple times now, just in your own experience, or your own practice, not necessarily what, what's out there literature wise, but um, any ingredients in particular that you would say, Yep, I'd be more inclined to look at these and these over here. I'm I'm probably not even going to mess with. Yeah, you know, it's here's here's one of the tricky things about the industry right now is that it's rare in my experience to find products that are purely one ingredient versus another. Mm. So you mentioned something like ashwagandha or lion's mane, just as an example, or we go into the sort of the adaptogen type spectrum, or we're going down the you know, we'll get to probiotics and prebiotics and all of that as well. But there's so many products out there that kind of take the kitchen sink approach. And I'm not saying that's yeah. a wrong thing to do, because in, in many cases, we understand that a lot of these these products, you know, they may not be profoundly impactful on their own. And so we're using them in combination to really get that cumulative effect that may be helpful and also makes it really difficult as a prescriber <laughs> to say, you know, unless that particular ingredient in that formulation has been studied for that exact condition, it makes it really difficult to start leaning in to go, ooh, I think we're onto something here. Um, and even when we start looking, you know, overall extrapolating what might work in a human, for example, if that's where the body of research is, doesn't automatically mean that number one, that it's going to work the same way for a dog or a cat or a horse or any other animal. And it also doesn't mean that it's safe for those other species, knowing that there are very specific metabolism and metabolic pathway differences, even if we're just talking dogs versus cats. There are mm -hmm. certain medications and certain supplements that you know could be incredibly toxic to a dog, for example, thinking, you know, just the, the, the first example that pops into mind, a little bit different from supplements, but looking at sugar alternatives like xylitol, for example. Yes. You know, so common within chewing gums and within so many other products in the market and even in extremely small concentrations can be lethal for dogs. So, you know, again, we can't automatically assume, well, it was really helpful in people and so therefore, um, maybe... Right. But unless we get that information to establish safety and efficacy in the species we're talking about, I always am going to be a little bit, um, hopefully not skeptical or guarded, but certainly cautious and curious about mm -hmm. whether this is something that may be of merit for a particular animal. Well, that was the grain free craze. Look what happened with that. You know, all of a sudden people were saying, oh, I've got to cut grain out of my diet. Let's make all these dog foods without grain in them as well. And then we have this onset of problems that resulted afterwards from that. So you're correct. People think, oh, this is good for me. It must be good for my dog as well. I can eat chamomile. I'm just going to feed my dog chamomile also. And interestingly enough, too, you have that that balance. Like 
I always think everything in moderation. Is it okay to give my dog a, a pepperoni instead of a piece of lean meat? Sure, everything in moderation, right? You can eat McDonald's every once in a while on a road trip, but if you eat it every day, we're going to have a problem. And so I think about that balance too, to where because these products aren't as regulated when people are trying them on their own, you you have, you have things even like um, salmon oil. And I don't know much about that balance in particular, but apparently there is one between inflammation where a certain amount of salmon oil with a dog can reduce inflammation. A certain amount of salmon oil can increase the inflammatory response. So, you know, bringing these factors into consideration, especially with client education, to help them understand it's not as simple as it may seem. It's not as simple as just trial and error. You may be doing more harm than good based on what the ingredient is. And like you had mentioned before, that specific dosage yes. with that ingredient. Yes, it all matters. Now, I'm flashing back when we talk about concentrations and even sort of drawing kind of black-white contrast between, let's say, supplement and pharmaceuticals, which, again, we know that there's a, there's a lot of gray and there's a lot of continuum within those spectrums. And yet, for this particular comment, I, I remember I was attending a psychopharmacology lecture. Gosh, this was before I was board certified, so this is probably back in, even back in the 06, 07, somewhere in that range. And it was a, a clinical pharmacist and pharmacologist excuse me, who was answering a question. He said, you know, here's the deal. There's often the perception that because it's a supplement, because it's natural, because it's whatever word we want to put on that, it's therefore better, safer, easier to metabolize. He's like, when you actually look at many of these compounds and look at some of the purified versions, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm painting in very broad brushstrokes here. There's going to be exceptions to what I'm saying here as well as there being consistencies. But when we look at some of the pharmaceuticals, that in many cases we've taken an active compound that may be found within a natural, holistic, whole item, purified it, and created a way for the body to, in some cases, metabolize or utilize that ingredient more effectively in a more targeted way that actually may end up creating a safer usage of that ingredient compared to where it was in that whole compound. So again, what the reason I bring this up here is not to automatically assume that pharmaceuticals are better, but also not assuming that because a supplement comes from a natural product that it's therefore safer or is going to really tie into that, again, kind of holistic approach to nutrition and wellness. Trust me, I've got no problems with that, right? I do a lot of that in my own world. And also it's that, is this one of those times where we need to understand that there, there may be a, a more targeted, more effective way to go about this. Maybe yes, maybe no. Mm, yeah. And I think, I think um, you know, for the average person or even the average veterinarian that's trying to help somebody weed through some of all of this stuff, it's very difficult to know what your red flags are. So for other um, fields or areas, products that have been around for a very long time. You know, dog food is an example. There are preservatives that are going to throw up red flags. There's ingredients that are immediately going to throw up red flags. So even if you don't know about some of the things that, um, that are in that and whether it's the right fit or the right match, at least you have a history to say, ah, but I can point out these things and I really don't like that. Here's why I think this is unsafe. So let's choose something different. But I feel like with supplements now, because this is such a newer up and coming area that people are so very interested in, it's harder. Like, what are those red flags um, and, and how do you kind of 
develop that same filtering system to where even if you don't necessarily know everything about all the ingredients that are listed in the supplements, you can still kind of filter that ahead of time and say, this is a red flag for me. That's a red flag for me. Are there anything, is there anything in particular that you look for in supplements that you might consider or someone brings to your attention that you'd say, "Mm, I'm not so sure because this ingredient is in here? Yeah, it's such a great question. I think there's there's two things that come to mind for me there. Number one, even for someone like myself who like this is what I do, right? Like this is this is my mm-hmm. sole focus. Well, yeah. it's not my sole focus right now, but it's my primary focus that I'm working with animals and working within that that behavioral space. And even within that, people may present a product and I look at it and go, I actually don't know what four of these ingredients are. Like I literally have no idea. Someone somewhere decided it was worth including. I don't know why. I don't have any ability to understand because I don't, I don't know. I can't find either, you know, it's a proprietary blend of something, you know, that that's internally regulated internally, meaning within the company, um, or there's something else going on there that I'm just like, I don't actually know. The other thing that I think is a really important detail too, is that for me, yes, I'm coming at it from the perspective of behavior. And so I'm really focused sort of on the efficacy and safety of those ingredients. But someone who comes at this, even still within the veterinary space, who comes at this as a gastroenterologist, for example, or someone Mm. who's a neurologist, they may have a completely different list of indications or contraindications based on their understanding of how those particular products might manifest in patients with different medical or health status. So it's... It's difficult. So, so I say all of that to be able to come back to, you know, if you're asking someone their opinion, whether that's, again, Susie in the store, whether that is, you know, someone on the internet, whether it's your veterinarian, whether whoever it happens to be, I personally think that it's fair to ask a follow up question. Hey, what do you think about this product? And what's your level of confidence in that recommendation, meaning is this really just an opinion or is it founded on some degree of scientifically validated information? And I find that most people are pretty straightforward about that, you know, and you're either going to get a sense of like, well, I've seen it work before. Cool. We're talking anecdotal. Right. Awesome. Not saying that's irrelevant, but as you pointed out earlier, Sarah, that's not a validated study. That's not looking at that product with 432 participants in a placebo-controlled blinded study. And, and I get a lot of consumers don't actually even know necessarily what those terms mean. And gosh, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. This was a couple of years ago. And we were talking about supplements uh, for, for people. So again, slightly different topic here. And I said, well, gosh, you know, Lisa, we've got this entire sort of list of, of the, here are the seven studies that tell us. And she was like, yeah, I actually prefer to look at the testimonials because that is someone's real experience. I feel like the studies are manipulative to try to sell me on something. And I was like, whoa, oh, no, <laughs> but, but that was, that was her reality, right? For her, yeah. it only seemed real if it was a testimonial. So we have individuals who are actually placing more weight on the lowest level of scientific information and feel manipulated or duped or somehow, you know, skewed when they're looking at it as a study. So if, if, if what I just said sort of speaks to you, I would encourage you as a listener to say, hey, can I do a little bit of a deep dive, not necessarily on supplements versus pharmaceuticals, 
but on the process of how to evaluate scientific information, that to me is it like that's in and of itself. And there's resources out there that will allow you to look at papers and understand what's what's of merit and what's not. That information exists. And it's so important to be able to look at this marketplace and then create some opinions for yourself that are not only founded on anecdotes and individual experiences and n of one sorts of examples, but truly reviewing the scientific literature, even at a superficial level to say, hey, is this valid or not? Yeah, it is. It's incredibly interesting, but you have to think like you and I are thinking about this. And so are veterinarians from a scientific perspective where that's not the field that everyone is in. It's not the field that the majority of people are in. They aren't thinking at it from that perspective. So of course I'm going to trust my neighbor, Susie. Yeah, I've known her for 20 years. Of course she's going to tell me the truth. And, and you know, the, the pharmaceutical companies are the ones that are leading these scientific studies. And I can't trust that, but I can trust Susie next door, right? So yes. yeah, it, often we have to step out of our scientific box and go, not everyone thinks like we do. Not everyone understands what's behind literature and research and these studies and controls. What is a control and how that dramatically affects um, the potential results or the potential outcome based on how you're deciding what to use or what not to use or what to even explore. Yes. So yeah, such a good point because people do, they are more likely to put their faith and effort into something that is, that could be could have some pretty tragic results, honestly, because yes. of where it's coming from. Yeah. And it's it's frustrating to me as a scientist where, you know, someone, let's talk about Susie next door for just a second, right? That is, you know, Susie had an experience with a product. It worked in her estimation. And so she is 100% convinced that is a black, white decision. This works. And Susie is leaning into that with an emphatic level of emotionality. Right. And then that client comes to me and says, well, my next door Susie is really, really jazzed about this. And I go, well, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Right. Like it could be this, it could be that. Like I'd have to know more about Susie and her dog. And now I look wishy-washy. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I can't make up my mind about whether this is a good thing or not. And people are like, well, I'm going to trust Susie. She's so confident about what's going on. I'm like, oh, okay, right. ah. It's so much easier to be confident about something when you're operating from a narrower field of knowledge versus mm -hmm. when you recognize all of those variables. If you're not considering some of those nuances, you're actually going to miss a whole part of the picture. And that's potentially, as you just said, problematic, potentially even dangerous. So I, yeah. I want to be clear on that too. I, I get it. I, I understand why having a real solid opinion feels more trustworthy it kind of does to me too until i kind of have the ability to go okay pause take a step back let's be what pragmatic does this actually mean let's let's take a look at this yeah and, and i see it online all the time you know I'm, i wish i could like drop every facebook forum i'm on but you can't right we're in the industry we gotta we gotta do it um but so often you know people are asking about supplements medications medical advice to a community that is not even the least bit medical. It's the mom's club of, you know, wherever it is. And you're like, oh my God, stop. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah, it's train yeah. Can't, exactly. can't look away, can't look in. And also mm -hmm. diving in, you know, as you said, the, the, not necessarily the most effective forum to be able to introduce scientific rigor and the ability yeah. to, to really evaluate, you know, fact from fiction or fact from opinion even. Well, and if you think about it too, 
there, there's only so much you can break down in terms of layman term for people who are not a part of the scientific community. It's like a car mechanic trying to explain to me how a particular engine works one versus the other. I, I, yeah, I'm intelligent enough to kind of keep up with the conversation, but I don't know the names of any of these parts. And if you just whiz through them, I'm like, nope, you lost me. You know, I, I can't, I can't follow that. So sometimes I feel it's just difficult even just in breaking it down into terms um, especially for veterinarians that are trying to explain things to clients as to why I want you to consider this. It may or may not work. And here's why I'm, as you would say, sounding wishy-washy because these are all the factors that contribute to that, but being able to express it in a way that isn't from their scientific perspective. It's from the typical pet parent that is, you know, in a completely different field as an attorney or, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, the, a delivery man or whatever the case may be so that they can, have a better picture as to why it might be advantageous to involve somebody with a scientific background or understand that. And, you know, this brings me back to something that you said about um, looking at the dog as a whole um, to where, yes, you might be addressing one problem, but you might be making another problem worse. I came across this the other day because, again, people send me stuff all the time to look at. Um, I was looking at dental chews, right? Dental month is coming up. Everybody wants to know about dental chews and everything else. And I'm like, just brush your dog's teeth. But anyway, they don't want to. So I'm looking at dental chews. And I, and I came across one particular product that had some pretty concerning ingredients. And I was like, the, the VOHC put their seal of approval on this package. And I'm thinking, how is that even possible? Like, and then I start questioning myself. I'm like, are these okay now? Have we done more research and found out that they're not toxic ingredients? And it, you know, you're talking about giving one of these every single day. That's not in moderation anymore. This is continuous exposure to these products. And then I had to step back and go, because the Veterinary Oral Health Cancer, er, Cancer, geez, Council, <laughs> that, I'm sorry, that was not Freudian. Um, veterinary Oral Health <laughs> Council is concerned about the mouth and the oral health of the animal. They're not considering necessarily the digestive process. Maybe they are, I don't know, or the specific ingredients that are going to affect another organ system in the body in a different way. So for people, you know, everyday average people who are trying to weed through some of these things to determine if it's a good fit might actually be using a, an ingredient, a product, a supplement that could potentially help with, say, um, thunderstorm phobia, right? Or separation anxiety. But we might be hurting them in the process by whatever other additives could potentially be in those things. Yes. Yeah. Holistic approaches, I think, are so important. And whether whether someone is using the word holistic to imply more sort of natural, alternative, complementary type therapies, or the way I tend to think about it, holistic meaning, you know, W-H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C, right? Holistic. Yes. Looking at the entire animal and trying to get as as best we can, a picture of what the ripple effect might be here, you know, and, and it's amazing how some of those things just, we, we don't even think about, right? And I, an example in my own household over the last month or so, uh, my own dog had a, an acute uh, back spasm episode. It's pretty bad, uh, truthfully, uh, mid-December uh, that landed us in the ER. He's since had a CT, like we, it, it was it was bad enough to warrant a lot of things. Anyways, we put him on pain control. He immediately felt better. He put him on cage rest, crate rest, huge crate, like huge. It's like half the size of a room. Anyways, um, to be able to limit his activity in that acute phase to present uh, prevent additional injury. 
And even as a veterinarian, I, you know, we did all of those things and I'm confident that that was the right thing to do. And then about two weeks goes by and I looked down and I was like, oh, dude, you've gained like four pounds. <laughs> He's a 50 pound dog, right? He put on almost 10% of his body weight because of reduced activity, because of a little bit of sedation from the pain medication. So even when he wasn't active, he really was just laying there being very passive, which was helpful for healing. Mm-hmm. And... I didn't compensate in another way by saying, hey, you actually don't need as much food right now in this short term. I promise, buddy, you're not going to starve. Like, but again, it, it, different example moving away from supplements for a second, but just a real you know, visible way of recognizing, wow, I did something that was 100% recommended and the right thing to do, and there was a ripple effect that I didn't anticipate. And that's visible not to mention all of the things that may be invisible because of what's happening internally within the animal. So, you know, when we get this sort of, you know, this whole conversation around supplements and multi-ingredient supplements and this versus that and concentrations, those are some of the things, those are some of the reasons why we get so concerned, aware, conscientious. Um, yeah. Take pause. Yeah. Before giving too much advice in one direction or another, because you're right. You have to look at the dog as a whole and see what's going on to determine whether that's going to work or not. And, um, and, and I think to pointing it out to owners to be aware, you know, if, if you see any digestive changes or, you know, any, um, mood differences or eating habits, if, if your dog all of a sudden becomes anorexic or, you know, is, um, voracious, you know, wants to voraciously eat their food, you know, just little things like that to determine if any tweaks need to be made. Yes. Yeah. Kind of like in the example that you're giving as well, certainly. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned earlier too, the, the benefit of journaling and jotting down some of those observations. And, and when I'm counseling clients and pet owners through that, the thing that I'm typically recommending is jot down anything that either seems stuck meaning you were sort of hoping this was going to get better, but it's not, or anything that seems different, even if it seems unrelated to the reason why we were using that. It's yes. the whole picture that's going to give us a sense of, is this doing what we wanted it to do, number one? And is there any sort of, well, collateral damage or any other problems that are shifting in other unexpected or unanticipated directions? And rather than just journaling you know, the frequency of barking in response to separation from owner, for example, if we're working with a separation related problem, like that's great to keep tabs on. That's going to give us perhaps a measure of efficacy, but it's not going to give us the full picture. And if I'm looking for the full pattern of how this supplement or pharmaceutical is impacting the overall health and behavioral well-being of that animal, I really do want the holistic picture. So journal, stuck and moving as best you can. What are those differences? And then I'm going to add on top of that because one of the, the more difficult things that I run into when I reach out to a veterinarian for information about behavior in the clinic or in practice or what they've seen or if they can see any timeline of history, any succinct changes in the animal, there are no behavior notes. And I like I'm pushing and pushing, like make behavior notes every time that animal comes in, make a behavior note, even if it's just short, succinct, quick, you know, um, seem slightly timid or cautious or gave a little growl or a lip curl or anything objective that you can throw in there that will help. And so just I want to throw some exclamation points around when a client brings that information and has actually done the work that you've asked them to do, because, you know, that's hard too. compliance. Yes. Woo. Um, but to to 
translate that into their file, into their record so that you can utilize that information because it is impossible to hold all of that in your head and think that, oh yeah, that client will trigger a memory. And then you're like, but is that this dog or was that the other dog? So I highly encourage, and I just wanted to take a moment to say, if your client does that and they've done their due diligence and they're being compliant, take those notes and put those into your system so that you have those and you can reflect on those as things are progressing or plateauing or you know whatever the case may be, you at least have that baseline. We do baselines with lab work. We do baselines with temperature, um, even though we're kind of getting out of that now, but we do baselines with everything else that you're triaging when your clients come in. So do your behavior triages too. So you, you know, which direction to hopefully go in or try or see what you've done prior. hundred percent. No. And it's, you bring up such a great point too, in that, you know, what seems so salient in that moment, Oh, I'm going to remember this. This was so dramatic. Yeah. This was so important. Oh, no, I actually don't know if this client's going to call me again tomorrow and sort of jog that memory again with, you know, so I get that update and I get that memory reconsolidation or that client goes home today and then their life takes a left turn and I don't hear for them for six months. And then they call me back up asking to follow up on that conversation. And I've got nothing in my record. I have right. no recollection of it. Did I talk to you? Was I, I, <laughs> I don't remember. So yeah, jotting it down. And, and this is tricky too, right? As you, as you know, working in the clinic situation, yeah, documentation takes time. So is there mm -hmm. a system that allows for us to do that, whether it's voice dictation, whether it's leveraging staff members, whether it's using some of the scoring systems like the, the, the FAS or the Fear Anxiety Stress Score from the Fear Free Organization. Yes. Like make, make it doable, right? Versus saying, oh, I've got to capture every single note. I need a transcript of my conversation. No, 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 nobody's saying that. Just get something right. down that you can reference back and answer that question. Hey, with now what we're seeing, do we think that's better, worse, or no different? Yeah, I think that'd be really helpful. So uh, speaking of products and ingredients, I did throw some at you because I'm curious. There are um, a number of supplements that I find are very popular. Lots of Amazon reviews, lots of things going on, lots of people using them. So I wanted to just give some specific examples and see what your thoughts are. Just have you go through them and say, yes, I like this. No, I don't. I would never use this because, or sure, in you know cases X, Y, Z, I might think about pairing it or I might think trying on its own. Now, I know a lot of that is very subjective based on the individual animal that is currently in front of you. So some of this is very generalized, right? But um, because some of these things are so popular, I thought maybe we could pick apart a couple of different products that are out there on the market just to give people a direction to think about. Just some, some things to ponder when you're looking at specific labels to say, these are the things I would look more into or... I feel comfortable with this, but, you know, obviously there's always the caveat is, is, is it for the right thing for the dog that's in front of me? Yeah. No, I, it's a great point. You know, and of the ones that, that you listed that you sent through ahead of time to take a glance at, it, it was curious to me that, you know, almost all of the ones that were on this list were actually new data points for me. I was like, ah, I've never even heard of most of these products. Oh, so interesting. It was, yeah, it was interesting. So like what, what the, the reason I, I really, that, that, that in and of itself struck me was that, popularity from a purchasing marketing review standpoint doesn't actually correlate to awareness or validity of product or any of those things. And so it was interesting. So, you know, I took a little bit of a deep dive on a couple of them. And, you know, what, what I find, again, you know, kind of coming back to something we were talking about before, that 
you know, the way in which I approach them is less related to popularity or a number of reviews and more about what's in it. And, you know, at least the ingredients that I have had in, in my clinical practice, again, as a behaviorist working with cases where we are, you know, specifically targeting fear, anxiety, stress, um, behavior patterns fueled by big feelings and emotion in most cases, not all, but in most, you know, I tend to lean on products that have more of a, again, where the research is, right? L-theanine, we've got a ton of research on, tryptophan, alpha-casozapine, uh, some of the new calming care probiotic type options as well. We've got research to give us an indication of when is this likely to be helpful, when is it not? And so I tend to skew in those directions. When I look at a lot of the other products, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of lumping together some of the ones that, that, that we were chatting about earlier, is that again, it, it becomes such a multimodal approach there's so many ingredients on the label that it really makes it difficult for me to weigh in in a really solid, yeah, I totally give that versus oh, I'm not quite so sure. I'm looking at it, number one, from ingredients. I'm also looking at brand reputation. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, many of the products that are out there are companies that I know nothing about. I don't necessarily know about their formulation standards. I don't know if they're actually looking at batch consistency from one production uh, group to the next. I'm not aware of whether they're actually doing aftermarket testing to confirm ingredients. I don't know any of those things about so many of the products that are out there and the many of the companies. And I find it really difficult to chase down each of those things because, and this is just my, my own personal experience here, is that I've done this with a lot of products and I get almost sort of, well, it's difficult to, to sort of tease out the forest from the trees where I get mm -hmm. to the end of a long deep dive and I've got this, this you know, graphic on my desk where I'm like, well, this is this, I'm at this concentration in this species and I've got this huge sort of flow chart and I'm like, I don't know that I'm any closer to an answer on this as to whether I would <laughs> recommend this or not. So let me go back to my core and say, what's in it? purity standards, reputation, you know, and all of those sorts of things. So it's a really long-winded answer to a question. I know it's probably more general and probably even a little bit vague, but dang, it's where I land every single time unless it's a product that I know and have used and trust the manufacturing and distribution process. And you know, I just mentioned the word distribution. I also want to mention that too, that especially when we're doing a lot of online shopping, the number mm -hmm. of places and times where I've heard from clients who uh, have purchased from certain retailers and end up with a redirected product that did not go through the appropriate recommended distribution channels. And they're actually getting sort of a repackaged or expired product. Again, I'm not saying that happens all the time, but it happens often enough in my direct view, that it makes me really concerned about some of the ways in which products are handled and whether we're not, whether we're actually getting what we paid for as consumers. Yeah, that makes sense. And don't worry, I'm not going to push you into giving specific details about things. I like that you're landing on this um, from a, a general platform because you there really aren't ways to fine tune it without having the research on these things. And you're right. I feel like a lot of the products and the ones that I sent you to, they are throwing the kitchen sink at it. They're like, well, we hear that this helps and this helps and this helps. So something's bound to help this animal. Let's put all those things into one product. That way it'll work no matter what. And people are going to love it. And, and that's what we're going to go off of. Not 
this particular ingredient is helpful in this situation. This particular ingredient is helpful in this situation. And you mentioned calming care. And that was one of the things that I like about um, Purina. So they have their, their probiotic supplements. They have calming care for behavior. And then we've got Fortiflora for um, GI intestinal issues and things like that. But you, you'll notice with a, a company like Purina, where I have lots of disagreements on a lot of the products they make, um, and that's a whole nother like, side story. But when it comes to their probiotics, they have narrowed it down to the specific strain that is well-researched. There's lots of literature out there. You know, with your calming care, you got your bifidobacteria longum, and um, you know, that is specific to anxiety. They've tested it on anxiety. And with your Fortiflora, you know, they're looking at one specific strain. So in just in looking at some of the calming supplements, that I went through, um, you'll notice there are multiple strains of different things that are in them because they might have an effect versus, yes, we know this has an effect. And I found that a lot with the GI, you know, GI supplements too. Those That, that was something I found quite in common with um, calming supplements or behavior supplements in particular. And the other thing I was going to ask you about too that I don't think people really realize is, is product sourcing. This is huge in the food industry as well from a nutrition perspective, but a lot of ingredients, you know, on the labels, you'll look at some of these, these, um, these calming supplements and these chews for separation related problems or fear or anxiety or stress. And it'll say like packaged in the US or globally sourced. And you're like, what does that mean? Are you ordering your ingredients from China one week? And then the next week you're ordering them from Mexico and who's making sure that these um, these these manufacturing companies or these production plants are actually not cross-contaminating with other things that could potentially be harmful. So when you mention knowing brands and trusting brands, I think that's one of those big glaring um, answers as to why. I mean, there's probably some very wonderful up-and-coming new brands that just don't have enough time behind them to show how wonderful they are. But at the same time, it's risky yes. because if you're looking at products that are produced from, you know, one of these newer brands, uh, you don't know where things are being sourced, especially when it says like globally sourced. Well, that's anywhere in the world. And that can change at any given point in time based on the batch or what the product is costing. Yeah. And it's, it's such a great point, Sarah. And I think that there's you know, there's a danger here, I, and I, I'm hearing sort of even some of the thoughts that are going through my own head where if I were someone listening to, to yours and my conversation now, I might hear that we're like, oh, cool, so we're big, we're big supporters of Big Pharma then, right? So we're, we're, we're sort of going in all that direction. You've got to be able to do all of these things. And that's not universally true, at least not for me, and I suspect the same for you, right? Like I'm not automatically right. saying because someone has done all these things, therefore they're reputable, but there's a track record that exists, and sometimes the lack of information from a from a startup, from a smaller com uh, company, from a, a company that maybe only has one or two products that they're in in development on, there's just there's a lack of information there. So I don't mean to disparage uh, a company that hasn't necessarily ha uh, developed a track record yet, and I'm not saying that I'm endorsing something that has arbitrarily, but it's that critical thought process of saying, hey, who are you? What are you doing? How are you doing this? Where are your ingredients coming from? You mentioned the cross-contamination piece again, which I think is a brilliant point to note, um, especially with some of the lessons that we've learned, especially on the human side of nutrition and supplements, that you know there can be some significant sensitivities to individual ingredients unless we've got some sense of confidence that we're not getting cross-contamination, we, we really could be doing harm. 
And it's perhaps even more important in the animal industries where, you know, our animals do not have the ability to go, you know what? That last batch of that medication, I don't know. Something felt a little <laughs> funky in my upper GI on that one. Like, they don't have the ability to do that. And sometimes things have to reach such a gross level of awareness and observation before we can really see it or recognize it. So I just tend to be a little bit more cautious in all of the ways that you mentioned to really try to not do harm in the process of trying to do some really good stuff for our clients and our patients. Right. Well, and so, okay, let me propose a scenario. So let's walk through like a real life scenario. You as the board certified veterinary behaviorist who might use supplements, might not, might pair them with psychopharmaceuticals, might not. You have this friend, right? Who is like, um, I've noticed that using these ingredients is really helpful for um, fear aggression. Okay. And so I want to, I want to try this out. I'm really convinced. I've, I've done the research, the research, I've got my formulation and I need a vet behind this product because I want to know that, you know, somebody that's in this profession knows that I've, I've done the right thing by compiling these ingredients and, and putting together a product that's going to address this problem, whatever this problem might be. So what are your recommendations and suggestions? How do you go about um, taking something that is on a whim because it's work for some person who has a big heart and wants to introduce the success that they've had with, you know, and that's how a lot of these companies start off with all these other people that are going through the same, you know, traumatic experiences with their own dogs. And so this person comes to you, you have a good rapport with them because you've known them for a long time and you're like, okay, I see where you're going with this. No, we're not just gonna start trying this out clinically. Here's what you need to do. Here's how to know whether this is going to be something that people are going to want to explore from a scientific approach and what that looks like. Yeah, it's the, the first thought that comes to my mind is how much time do we have to get into all of these details? Because it is complicated. But I'm going to try to sort of distill this down in a way that makes sense to me. So if the client is coming to me and says, yeah, this, this, and I'm, I'm going to use that probably a lot in this conversation, this meaning whatever this product or collection of ingredients happens to be, this has helped my dog. Cool. What are your observations for this dog or for the dogs or the cats or the animals that you've got data on so far? What was your baseline? What was done? And what were the results? And to tease each of those out, you know, coming back to the original observations, what were the behavior patterns that were observed? With what frequency? What was the duration? What was the recovery? Do we have a solid enough picture of those individual animals to be able to lump that entire group of animals into a cluster and say, oh yeah, they're actually similar enough animals that I can kind of treat them as a group or it's diverse enough if I'm going in the direction of this could be helpful for everybody. But, but there are statistical methods to be able to determine that based on then saying, what did I do? So you're talking about a supplement, you're, at, you're talking about this particular intervention. Is that the only thing that was done? Or even just in talking about treating for fear and anxiety, were there any other recommendations that were given to the client that could act as a confounder where, you know, was this a placebo effect? Was it something where, the, you know, the supplement did nothing, but because there's an observation bias, we now have folks either hoping or perhaps even making other changes within their day-to-day -day life 
that are actually making a big difference. And we know the power of, of environmental management and behavior modification. And even whether it's, you know, intentional or perhaps even a bit, sub, you know, unconscious or subconscious in terms of the implementation, that can be really, really profound in the way that the animal either behaves or the way in which their behaviors are observed. So that's all within sort of the what did we do piece. Are we confident enough that it was essentially the only thing that was being done? And do we have, we mentioned before, sort of more of a placebo control. Do we have a similar group of dogs that we gave something that sort of looked like, smelled like, and acted like the, the, the test supplement, but didn't contain those same active ingredients? And if the product you have is actually doing something, then we should find that your treated group gets better in whatever way we're defining better to a more significant degree compared to placebo. And we also, just as a little aside, we know that placebo-based trials, even when it's only a placebo-based trials, those often have significant impact on behavior yes. and other observations too. So this yep. piece, even in, in, in really evaluating, did what we gave... I think it was a terrible sentence. Did what we gave in that case, did it make a difference or was there something else that was a confounder? And then we're still looking at that next step of, and what was the result? Back to some of the same things that I mentioned with our baseline, what are we measuring? Is it a particular type of behavior? Is it a frequency? Is it a duration? Is it a recovery? Is it something about that animal? Or are we looking at physiologic data or biochemical data to really establish efficacy as well as safety and not being able to detect any unwanted problems or patterns that may have emerged through the process of whatever this treatment happened to be, right? If we have all of that, that's essentially the basis of a scientific, valid, scientifically validated uh, experiment to determine whether we can actually come out of that and say, yeah, I've got a reasonable confidence that this thing actually works for the thing that you're describing it. Anything less than that is down in the, anything less than that is down in the sort of the lower, lower levels of scientific validity. And I'm not saying we dismiss it, but it's not the same thing in terms of being able to lean into that. So that is my answer to that person who comes and says, I think I've got this thing that's magic. Well, let's test it. And that's what it looks like. What would you add to that, Sarah? Well, um, I, I think I would add a question to that. So can you actually really determine the efficacy of said magic drug in this supplement if you don't look at it from not just the behavior perspective. Oh, this made my dog feel better. My dog has more pep in its step. It's not shivering in its crate. It's coming out more. Can you actually um, have an answer to that without the physiological side? So are we looking at cortisol levels? Well, we know now that measuring cortisol levels doesn't always provide adequate results because just physical activity increases cortisol. Good stress increases cortisol. So what are the physiological aspects? Are we looking at heart rate? Or is the animal in a condition or in an environment where you can adequately measure those things without, um, you know, falsely, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, inducing something that isn't there basically. So yeah. Can you even determine that without looking at it from a physiological standpoint and an observational standpoint with here are the behavior changes that I have or have not noted? Like, I feel like you, maybe you need both of those pieces combined, combined to make, you know, an adequate representation. And then 
I think testing this is tough because, you know, you think about um, why we're doing this. We're doing this to help an animal in need, right? So if you don't take that three-pronged approach that you talk about where you do have the behavior modification piece and you do arrange their environment and then we consider whether we're doing medications or supplementations, like if you're only looking at that supplement, are you really doing better for that animal or are you just kind of you know, let's try this and see what happens and roll the dice and maybe the animal gets better, but maybe it gets worse because we're not doing everything that we need to do for it. So yeah, that would be my question. Like, can we even make a determination without those two factors? And is it right to make those determinations without that three-pronged approach? Yes. Ah, I'm so glad you added that addition on there too, because I I think it is important. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, and, and I'll be honest, as a practitioner, as a prescriber, it's one of my kind of conflicts where I, I say exactly that. Oh, I can't stand behind this product, whatever it is, because they don't have the data. And yet getting the data is so incredibly challenging at the level that gives me confidence to make the recommendation, which brings me back to sounding wishy-washy, like I can't just make up my mind. Like, no, 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 I'm very clear. I'm 100% unanimous in exactly how I feel about this. And the answer is it sort of depends. And we've got to be able to come back to that N of one. What is best for this animal? And how do we gather that information in a way that starts to, to give us more of that information? And again, I, I know that that takes time. It takes money. It takes resources. It takes a lot of effort to get that, which brings me back to some of the companies, some of the ones that I work with routinely, companies like... Uh, Nutramax or Vetra Science or Siva or Vetakinol or some of those companies that do have the resources to put some of the testing into this to give us something that we can actually go, ooh, under these conditions, I have confidence that these products did these things. Right. That gives me confidence as a prescriber. It still doesn't guarantee that that particular intervention is going to work for this animal but I at least have a solid foundation of where I'm coming from and I know what to expect. I have confidence that it will be well tolerated or if there is a side effect potential, I know what that's likely to be based on the thousands of reports or hundreds of thousands in some cases that have come in to really help us understand those details. So it's it's a really important stage of that entire process and, and it really impacts the prescriber's ability to make those recommendations in a confident way. Yeah, so out of curiosity, how frequently do you um, prescribe supplements and or pairing supplements with a psychopharmaceutical? Yes, it's a good question, you know, and I would say that when we look back at the cases that we manage within the animal behavior clinic, knowing that it's myself and I've got three other doctors who work with me in in the practice here in Portland, When we look back at our cases, I would say that the majority of our patients do receive some form of recommendation under this uh, third prong medication umbrella, which includes supplements, pheromones, probiotics, prebiotics, uh, nutrition, as well as pharmaceuticals, right? So we're giving some sort of a recommendation there. Um, Not because we think that every animal, quote unquote, needs that. But as we were talking about before, if we're moving forward with environmental management and behavior modification, if we can smooth that process, speed it up a bit, reduce without sedation or side effects, but reduce the impact of emotional uh, interference with learning, can we, can we get to a better place 
faster and more reliably, right? So the vast majority of our patients do get some sort of a recommendation there. As to pharmaceuticals versus supplements, it varies based on a couple of factors. Again, when we look at these cases, in some cases, it may be based on client preference that, you know, I may have a client who comes in and says, you know what, at least today, I'm really not interested in pharmaceuticals, but if there were something on the supplement side or the more natural products, I'd be open to considering that. Cool. Then that may be, regardless of my recommendation, that may be a place where we start to see whether or not that is in fact enough for this animal to achieve the progress that we're looking for. So sometimes it has almost nothing to do with the animal and is more sort of client or consumer driven in some cases. Uh, in some cases, there may be something else going on medically for that animal. Let's say it's an animal that has more of a GI sensitivity, for example, or is uh, sensitive to certain ingredients from a skin or epidermal barrier standpoint. And so I may be saying, ooh, you know, actually, you know, there's this supplement that I think might actually be a better fit for your animal's unique needs, avoiding potentially, if there's a side effect profile that may be relevant within the medication, keeping in mind that particular determination could go in either direction. I may be recommending the pharmaceutical for exactly the same reasons based on that animal's medical status, which is why getting that medical status is so important. Uh, it may also be a matter of understanding certain patterns of diagnosis and certain patterns or even quote unquote labels for the behavior, meaning, you know, we've got certain plant extracts, for example, that have been previously tested as a benefit for patients with noise sensitivity, for example. So I may look at that and go, okay, you know, yeah, big picture holistic pattern I could go in a lot of different directions. If I really wanted to hone in on this particular area, I may look for products, pharmaceutical or supplement that include this cluster of ingredients. So in some cases, it's the very specific pattern that the, that the animal is presenting with that may give me more of an indication in one direction or another. And then I would say for many of our patients, you would ask as well, how often are we using them in combination? And I find where a lot of our patients are, we, we may start with a supplement as we're onboarding some of our management and behavior modification recommendations, say, hey, let's, I don't know if it's gonna make a difference, but let's, let's try, right? Let's try to smooth this process. Let's get us moving in the right direction. If we come back to our next recheck in a week, in a month, or however long is, is appropriate between those appointments, and if we're not making some headway, then we may layer in a pharmaceutical at that point in time. But if you tell me that, that your impression was that the supplement made a difference, we may actually keep that on board for a little bit. You know, again, I don't want to take something away if it's making a difference. So then we'll look at the interaction between the supplement and the pharmaceutical to make sure that there's nothing concerning there and then continue moving forward, knowing that at some point in the future, maybe it's a week, maybe it's a month, maybe it's a year, we may drop out some of those initial products to say, hey, is it still making a difference? Or have we created enough progress through our behavior modification and our overall comprehensive treatment plan that it's no longer relevant anymore? And I'm going to make that same determination on the pharmaceutical side as I do on the supplement side. So I would say that we're often onboarding supplements and then layering in pharmaceuticals. But I do have clients who come into me uh, or patients who come into me who are already prescribed pharmaceuticals. And let's say they've achieved 60 or 70% of their goals and we're just looking for that next 10, 20, 30%. I don't know that I necessarily want to throw another big drug at that animal. 
What if we worked more synergistically and added in a supplement at that point in time? Again, I don't have quite as big of an ask of that supplement to try to do all of the heavy lifting as I may have had on the front side of a plan. And so I may be adding it in on the, on the, the tail end or midstream to treatment as well to try to facilitate what we're trying to accomplish. So it can look really different from one case to the next, but we do often use them in combination with one another for sure. Yeah, I love that you brought that point up. Um, it, it's by dish, by definition what even behavior modification without medication work looks like to where we're going to try this. Let's see what direction it takes us. If it's working well, maybe the plan step two that we had already in our mind is what we were going to do next doesn't need to happen because this is on a good trajectory. Let's stick with it. Or, you know, this isn't working out so well, but um, maybe it's opening the door for learning and we still will onboard a medication per se, a behavior medication, but at least we have the opportunity to start our behavior modification plan because now we can at least get this animal to a point where they're not so through the roof with anxiety or so through the roof with fear that we can actually begin some behavior modification work. And knowing that there are options um, to kind of get you through, because you think about some of these drugs that take, you know, four to six weeks to truly onboard, what do you do in the meantime? You know, just let the dog do what the dog normally does. No, because the owner is really frustrated. They're probably already at the end of their rope. They need some help. But again, that learning door, that learning period, if they're just, you know, such a severe case that there isn't any learning to be happening because they're so over threshold all the time and so stressed um, that being able to have that option to layer something in and then look at how that layering has helped from a supplemental um, perspective as to whether that is inducing an environment that this animal now is able to learn. And maybe it's not a lot, but we're starting to see some progress. And then at the end of that kind of regimen, are we going to continue that because we like the progress that we're seeing or yeah, we're going to still continue with the same plan we had before. Yes, we're going to continue to onboard a medication or do something differently, but at least there are so many options. And I think it's important to always kind of tease out that that is behavior in a nutshell, whether you're looking at it from a medical perspective, you're looking at it from straight behavior modification, like you have to be able to adapt and flow based on the dog that's in front of you and how they're either progressing, plateauing or regressing in any sense. So I like that those options are available. I like that it isn't, okay, you know, a mathematical equation, you know, this is input, this is output. Like it's never that simple, unfortunately. No, it's not, you know, and I think it's, 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 I'm glad we're getting to this part of the conversation here too, especially for folks who, who may be listening, thinking, you know, well, gosh, like, do, do, do we use supplements at all? I'm like, yes, we use them all the time, you know, but I think the selection criteria is really important. I think having a really solid idea of what we think the supplement may do and on what timeline, as you just mentioned, you know, is this something that I can, you know, add on board right here, right now, thinking about some of the pheromone products, for example, not that every animal is a, a huge responder to them, but some of them are. And when they work, it's almost an immediate effect. And so, you know, that's great. If we're looking for some immediate benefit, even as a trial, great, let's try it. But if we've used it consistently for two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, and it's not making a difference, it's probably not going to. So if you're really considering, again, whether it's a pheromone, whether it's a supplement, whether it's a pharmaceutical, asking the prescriber, hey, how long does this typically take and what's our game plan? 
If things are better, how long are we likely to use it? If it's not better, what's our next step? Or, or do we just wait for that? But what's the timeline that would allow us to make that determination? Because I don't want someone literally spinning their wheels and spending money for supplements that are coming in on auto ship because that's what we thought was going to be the best deal here. And here we are now two months, six months, 10 months down the line. And oh my gosh, you know, that's, that's potentially 10 months of learning that we can't undo for that animal. So I don't want right. to skip over the supplements by any stretch of the imagination, but I want to make sure that we're using them really strategically and not expecting the supplement to do the heavy lifting where environmental management and behavior modification need to be involved. Absolutely. Yeah. Always a catalyst, not ever the silver bullet. Basically. 100%. 100%. Yeah. So we're going to wrap it up because I know you have a hard stop at 90 minutes and I want to be very respectful of your time. And um, I could go on and on because I love the idea too of talking about the probiotic supplements that help the GI tract because the GI tract is related to the brain. And if you have, got, but anyway, we won't get into that today. Perhaps I can pull you on for another one on that topic because that's one of my favorites too. And it has to do with supplements. Um, but Thanks so much for enlightening us as always. I always walk away from a conversation with you feeling good about my day because you're such an infectious, bright personality and you bring so much to the table. And I just want to say thanks for um, providing some information and um, being a good voice, a very reasonable voice for, and I know you you call it generalizing answers, but it's not. You're, you're really introducing a lot of reason. These are all the things that we need to think about. And I really appreciate you bringing that perspective to the table so people are using those magnificent brains and actually thinking through it. And it's okay if you seem a little wishy-washy. You kind of should be in this. <laughs> there's, you know, there's a little element to of goodness to that, to where you pause and you think, is it the right thing for the dogs that's in front of me? So thank you for being a, a, a highlight to that, um, uh, that concept, because I think that's really important, especially when you're looking at something that is a field that isn't really all that well researched just yet. It's up and coming, and so we don't have all the answers. So thank you for that. Thank you for all of your input. And as always, your, your brilliant way of thinking to look at some of these difficult topics and dissect them. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's always a pleasure to be here. And, and I agree. We, we could keep this conversation going for hours, but I know listeners probably have other agendas too. So <laughs> I, I agree. We'll, we'll, we'll put a pin in the rest of the topics. We'll come back to those another time. And again, as always, thank you. And for those, for those listeners who may not have a full perspective on what it really takes to continue producing quality content and getting that out to everyone, it takes a ton of work on the back end. So a, a huge kudos to you, Sarah, and your team for really continuing to putting the work to make that happen. I fully support that. Uh, it's an honor of mine to be a, a guest on the show and I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks so much. I really appreciate that. Bye.